don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, on the non-greenness of nature, dust debris and other atmospheric architectures with David Kissing. Today my guest is uh, David Gisson, who's a historian, uh, a writer, and uh, uh, the creator of a few experimental historical projects, as well as a member of the faculty of the uh, California College of, for the Arts, uh, where we are recording this conversation. He's also the author of two books, uh, Subnature and uh, Manhattan Atmospheres, and, uh, and that's uh, something we're going to talk about today. Um, Hello, David. Hello. Uh, Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, as I often ask uh, my guests, can you maybe describe a little bit uh, uh, what you're currently doing in your research, in your work, uh, so that we can uh, maybe uh, start a little bit the conversation? Yeah, okay. So um, for the past several years, I've tried to explore different ways to practice history um, outside of writing. Um, even though I love to write uh, histories of architecture, I'm, I'm very interested in, in what a historical practice could be in a way that's, that's somehow different from, from those more normative ways of practicing. So over the past several years, I've drawn several different projects, imagined dif projects in different contexts that are about history, about future ways we might imagine historical episodes in cities or sea history and so right now believe it or not I'm trying to work, figure out how to realize some of these projects I'm very interested in the challenge of that so which is very difficult mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and uh, I'm sure that's something we're going to uh, reach at some point of the conversation so uh, uh, let's uh, let's start it right now um, the, the first thing that I want to do is to introduce uh, a little bit the your first book, uh, Subnature, uh, that is, uh, 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 I like, I like to, I like to write sometimes or to to read some uh, counter history of architecture and uh, and uh, uh, it, in a recent article I wrote uh, was doing the counter history of suburbia and the kind of political uh, ideology that was uh, 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 that was. Uh, Enunciated as the official version, but also the the more the hidden hidden rational behind uh, behind the construction of suburbia. In your in your case, it's some nature. You're doing a sort of counter history of architecture, considering their uh, considering components of architecture that are usually uh, declared as uh, uh, not noble or or not not romantic or or not. Uh, not really wanted, um, and uh, I suppose the, the probably the best way to, to talk about that is to simply uh, read your um, your the index of the book because I think it says it all. So that's uh, uh, so here we go. The part one is about atmospheres, and the chapters are dankness, smoke, gas, exhaust. Part two is about matter. So we have dust, puddles, mud, debris. And part three is about life, and it's uh, weeds, insects, pigeons, and crowds. 
So all all those components that are usually there 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 sort of things that every architect are trying to trying to uh, avoid as much as possible you are actually uh, uh, making a history of architecture based on based on those uh, on those elements and uh, and also uh, talk about a few projects that are uh, uh, embracing those uh, those material and those aspects of uh, of, uh, of architecture so can you um, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about uh, about this process you you went through? Yeah, sure. That um, that table of contents always reads like a bad building inspection: right? <laughs> weeds, insects, mold, dust, yeah. right? Um, smoke. So there's no asbestos, but uh, yeah, no asbestos, right? That's that's that'll be in the second mm. the second printing. Um, okay, so that book is. That book was a lot of fun to write, <laughs> but that book was part of a, a much bigger question that I, I, ha I had, and I guess I still have, which is how can you have a critical concept of nature in architectural history, but also in architectural theory? And actually, it, it's, what's interesting to me too is that you, um, you mentioned that I have two books. I, I actually have another book, which I never talk about anymore. Oh. Um, which I wrote a, a very long time ago when I was um, just starting my career in, in my late 20s um, that was about sustainable architecture. Uh -huh. And I was extremely frustrated with the, um, the limits of that concept and, and trying to explore a, a kind of history. I was very interested in um, environmental approaches to the kinds of large-scale buildings that come out of capitalist economies, whether that's skyscrapers or, or large-span large space buildings. Um, for factories and so forth. And I was very interested in how people were attempting environmental approaches to these. But ultimately, almost immediately after finishing that project, which was also an exhibition, I just found the whole thing frustrating, and, and I was not a believer. I was skeptical from the beginning, and in the end, I was even more skeptical. And so, speaking with some people that were peripherally involved with that project, other historians and theorists who of architecture who are in the United States, I, I kept asking this question, is a critical theory of nature in architecture possible, or is sustainability, environmentalism, green theory, is that all that we, is that the only form of critique that we have, which I think you and I would probably agree is not very critical. Mm -hmm. And um, one of these mentors said, um, no, a critical theory of nature is not possible in architecture. And I just couldn't accept that. And so I was very interested in I was very interested in how certain kinds of forms of nature that architecture pushes to its margins, whether because they come, they come from processes of capitalization that are very disturbing to us, industrialization, or war, as in the case of something like debris, or revolution, like crowds. Like, how, how could these things that seem to be pushed to the liminal, liminal edges of, of what we even think is acceptable or reasonable to talk about? Like, even, even writing that table of contents was a provocation because it makes us laugh a little to hear that because it seems so, so, out, it seems so at, the, at some kind of margin. So I was interested in, in how we could look at that as some kind of total concept of a different way of thinking of nature and architecture. And so, giving it a name, I settled on... Um, on subnature, and I, maybe I could tell you how that name came about, sure. and we could, you know, we could, it might help explain the ideas behind the book more. So, I, I suppose the sub is 
not so much a geological uh, uh, appreciation, but rather a sort of uh, a sort of uh, joke on the hierarchy that nature can uh, yeah. convey. With like the yeah. the tree maybe at the very top of the hierarchy, yeah. and, and the pigeon maybe at the very bottom, or of God it. maybe as yeah. a representational yeah. imaging architecture yeah. as at the top, um, or light. Um, you know the light, the light of a supreme being. Yeah, um, let, let the light be. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, subnature is like is both a, in a sense almost a an, an architectural category of, of nature, like a geographical category. But I also think it's a um, it's a aesthetic system or a a, a way of a, a regime of nature might be a way of saying it that that is exists only within industrial industrial modernity. Um, so, one could compare. So, I, I was I had this um, brief portion at the beginning of the book where I lay out this idea. So, the supernatural is an aesthetic that we're very accustomed to in architecture, but we don't really talk about it as such. And I would argue that the Baroque is, in a sense, an aesthetic of architecture that is about materializing the supernatural images of of God, of light, of angels, of of, um, religious ecstasy to a world beyond our world, and a connection to our world, almost in a way someone we don't quote very much in architecture these days, but used to quite a bit. The way someone like Deleuze might have described the Baroque as this bridge between this kind of endless fold up into an ecstatic, potentially um, godlike moment. The heaven, heavens that appear somehow on earth. Um, so that's the supernatural. And then I thought the natural uh, is an aesthetic we're also very accustomed to dark texture, which we do talk about quite a bit more, and that's very much, for me, associated with ideas of the picturesque. And the subnatural would be a category of nature and architecture that cannot support um, human society in any way. Like, it, does, it doesn't seem to offer any like a kind of structure in the way that um, a religious aesthetic of nature would, or nature, which is presented as a, a kind of site for resources, right? Or at least for um, visual contemplation and some kind of um, stabilization of the subject contemplating this, or, or self-awareness. Whereas sub, sub-nature for me was an entirely different category, neither supported nor gave any um, uh, understructure to society and, and often seemed to threaten the subject because of its inherently threatening character. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wow, if you have something that's so contrary to the self, then you really are potentially onto a critical theory of nature. Because it cannot be, for something to be critique, it can't be easily absorbed into um, the dominant economy, dominant politics, however, however you may define that. And I think subnature is, for me, remains su- somewhat successful as a concept in that way. It's not perfect. but. At the moment, I think in terms of a critical theory of nature, it's 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 for me, it's 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 what I, it's the only thing I could find within the history of architecture and and a potential future theory of architecture. Yeah, um, I, th- I think uh, a few a few of the listeners of uh, the, the archipelago conversations are not necessarily uh, uh, anywhere close from their architectural scene, so maybe to to unfold a little bit their. Uh, uh, the logics that we are talking about. I mean, I, I think it's it's not just proper to architecture, but obviously there's a, there's a, an, an important movement towards uh, 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 green architecture. I mean, it's it's interesting. The, the the word green is actually very much used in a in a very official way, uh, uh, and uh, and it doesn't take much uh, it doesn't take much scratching to realize that this is just 
one more uh, one more mutation of of, uh, of capitalist logics. I mean, just like uh, it's, it's it's the idea of I mean, for in a non-architectural metaphor, it's the idea of the of the ecological uh, hammer, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that we uh, we're uh, the, the a good a good way to a good way to see that those um, the sort of political agenda that's supposed to be behind that is not very serious is a, is to see that it's it's not trying to answer the right questions uh, it's not even a problem of answers it's a problem of questions uh, um, and uh, and so and so what subnature does is to go from this uh, to stay within the realms of colors is to go from the green nature that is extremely pic- uh, pic- pictorial as you say uh, almost nostalgic somehow I mean uh, you can think maybe of uh, Prince Charles, very strong uh, passion for for uh, arts and craft architecture mm. uh, uh, in a very in an extremely nostalgic way as well, um, and to go from a green architecture to a gray, uh, mm. I'm sorry, a green nature for mm. to a gray nature, mm. which uh, uh, and and somehow talking about a gray nature is also uh, no longer. Uh, thinking of nature in a kind of Cartesian way, where uh, man has to uh, become uh, uh, master and dominant—I don't, I don't know the exact quote in English—but master and dominant of their of nature, uh, to maybe what I would say a, a more Spinozist uh, 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 vision of nature, where where uh, this thing we call human and and the every creations, every manipulation of ma- matter. That the human is is created is very much part of nature as well, isn't it? Yes. Well, um, in th- one of the people I find. Well, first of all, you made many interesting comments. Um, let me answer your question in a second. So, sure. um, I don't. I think one reason. I agree with everything that you said about green architecture. I think one reason I'm increasingly uncomfortable with attacks on green architecture is that it makes us think that this turn towards nature to rectify <clears throat> the um, paradoxes or hypocriticism of, um, <clears throat> of our moment um, is something new. And I think, you know, reciting Prince Charles is fascinating. The, the picturesque was a turn towards nature in the 18th and early 19th century that, that attempted to resolve some of the paradoxes of colonization. <clears throat> fracturing the world, you know, via the British Empire. So the At idea the highest of industrial revolution, and, uh, and I mean, clearly yeah. in, in the nineteenth century, uh, n- nature was green, green. Nature was already a yeah. sort of luxury for yeah. aristocratic and bourgeois population rather than the working class. Well, no, I mean, I think those are those are really important, interesting points. But I mean, the way the picturesque could make a fractured world appear whole. So, for example, <clears throat> in the early picturesque gardens of the. Of, uh, of British aristocrats or, or, or otherwise wealthy uh, landholders, um, pieces, literal pieces of architecture or nature from China or Africa or or the Caribbean were, were brought to the estates um, or recreated on these estates, and it was the aesthetics of the picturesque that could somehow enable such a such such fractured senses of geography and time to somehow come together and make sense. So I think you know, as some as has been argued, the picturesque was an aesthetic that enabled colonization to look whole, even though colonization, as we know, imperialization, was a process that very much fractured the world around it. So 
I think you know we turn to nature often to or to, to resolve these contradictions. So, so to get to your your second points in question, that that um, that turn is something that a geographer who passed away recently, who I like very much, named um, uh, Neil Smith, you know. Um, Describes in a very Marxist geographic way as the bourgeois conception of nature. It's a nature that makes a fractured world whole, right? And I think you know, I think Neil Leach has another theory of, of nature, um, called the production of nature, which sounds a, a bit like um, the way you described as a Spinoza nature that I find incredibly inspiring. And what Neil um, Smith argues is that since um, the early to mid nineteenth century, basically all the nature on the earth has been increasingly remade or completely remade by um, human beings. And that there's no, there's no, um, this is an idea that now seems very familiar to, to us today, but he wrote this in the early 80s. Actually, he wrote some of these, some of his theories are, are from even earlier before we could like, you know, clone um, embryos or some of the kinds of things that are happening today. So this is a very radical idea. And he says, even something like the moon, which has not yet been reproduced, he said. It's just a matter of it's just a matter, and it's it's just a it's just an issue of time and technology. That that you know that 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 even if we his point is that even if we can conceptualize some part of our world, our known world, that is untouched by human beings, that we understand that to just be a um, an issue of time mm-hmm. and distance versus a reality that's possible. And it's, about it's a it's a pretty you know what what so. One of his more disturbing statements later in his career was something like, like Chernobyl is a great example, that every living thing on the earth has the imprints of Chernobyl in it because of the, the massive distribution of radiation that that um, accident, unfortunate accident, entailed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, t- since you were talking to, about the moon, I remember reading an article uh, written by you about this, uh, this project that uh, Jeff Rakitnis oh, yeah. was uh, yeah. describing a sort of sort of artistic narrative projects mm-hmm. where we would take every nuclear nuke of the, yeah. of the planet and, send, and, and create uh, a sufficiently big uh, uh, crater, crater yeah. on, on yeah. the moons that we yeah. could actually see from, from here. Yeah. yeah, so as a gesture of, of peace and of the ending of war, yes, Kipnis proposed completely irradiating the moon. I mean, it's kind of like, it's a... It's a it's like a, um, it's 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 a disturbing project that that I think is um, searching for some type of politic in a way that's acceptable to somebody like Jeff Kipnis. So it, it has some, it, it 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 has some things that are extremely eerie about it, but that are nonetheless very interesting. Yeah. <coughs> but so so far we've been uh, we've been talking about some nature in a sort of. Uh, general and abstract way, but actually the, the, your book is, uh, is full of uh, very interesting uh, uh, hi- histories, history and stories uh, uh, that, that are uh, more specific to each of those ma- matter we, we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So could you maybe tell us more? Maybe like, uh, so, I mean, I remember this, this article in particular that I was referring to was about... About dust. debris. Or no, oh, debris, debris. Debris, debris, debris yeah, I'm sorry. So debris was a really fun chapter to write in that book. First of all, uh, I was very curious about this word debris. Like, where where does this word come from? It's, it's French, yeah. of course. Um, and so, based upon it lost its accent in the English translation, as it yeah, was. yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, based upon 
uh, what, what I what I could discover about the word. We can trace its roots to about mid 18th century in terms of when it begins to appear with like some kind of regular usage, you know, um, maybe slightly earlier. And um, what one discovers about that particular word is that it's um, it, it, its use within French writing begins to be used more frequently to describe the results of uh, certain kinds of warfare, um, particularly warfare involving things like cannons and their effects on his generally historical buildings or, or, or you know, uh, 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 as structures and buildings in, in cities. And um, I'm trying to, I'm sorry, my, I'm speaking with you now and I can't remember any of my French, which is very embarrassing. But um, décombré, décombré? Décombré, yeah. Yeah, décombré, right, was a word to describe, it's also a word that we can use to describe um, small bits of a building, but I think in English one would translate that more like rubble. Yeah. Right. So the is, do you agree with that translation? Uh, yeah, I would I would say décombre versus débris would be uh, décombre would be uh, bigger pieces. Yeah. Than, yeah. 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 So like in English we would say rubble yeah. or debris. So décombre is a is a much older word. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, and so. You know, debris begins to give name to something that we would otherwise think of as like in- infinitesimal things that, like Deconque, were, were once part of a larger whole. Anyway, whatever, without getting completely uh, metaphysical and, and, and not being very specific. So I was, very in- I was just very interested in architectural um, writers, historians, people now we might call architectural theorists like Villa de who um, had, had used these words alternate, you know, in alternating ways, debris, decombre, and like how they were using them. And one of the things that's interesting in Villiers-le-Duc's work is that he often uses the word debris to describe the, um, the after effects of war versus décombré, which he uses to describe things more like natural causes in his writing. Um, the other, th- um, someone like um, uh, uh, Julien David Leroy, right? um, who, <laughs> who describes um, uh, like the um, debris left after the explosion of a volcano, for example, is debris. Anyway, so... I, f- I felt like one could make an argument um, that debris had this strong association with war in um, architectural theoretical literature. And so I was really interested in that. And so the chapter moves from these very specific instances of people like Villaduc and others describing debris from battle to um, other architects in different languages also coming to terms with the infinitesimal components of former structures via war. So that was the way I was going to carry this chapter through. So we go through many, many um, epochs, and one of the um, one of the um, areas in which I begin to concentrate more was in Japan right after World War II, <clears throat> and also in Britain right after World War II, in which people are architects who who is the interest of, of me in this book, how they're trying to come to terms with these landscapes. So. Um, Japanese architects from the metabolist movement trying to describe the the gray embers use the term yeah. gray that described as like this gray landscape. Isozaki, right? Yeah. Uh, well, Isozaki is one of the one of the people. Yeah. yeah. Um, who are trying to make sense of this <clears throat> in Britain? Uh, I was really interested in Alison Peter Smithson, who, you know, some of their early projects make a very interesting iconography of reconstruction relative to landscapes of debris, and 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 as as we know. In their project Robin Hood Gardens, they even make this massive kind of monumental, almost like cairn-like 
<clears throat> landscape in the center that's composed of all of the debris from the destruction of the buildings um, that, that were once there on that particular property that were destroyed also to help construct that building um, to, to the former site of that building so yeah so it was, it, it, there was, it was very interested again in this French derivation of the term and association with war and kind of carrying it through to the present yeah. mm-hmm. and that, uh, what about dust I, I, I feel like we should talk about dust for some reason it's a, it's a material that's particularly uh, Yeah. Interesting because that's that's uh, that's um, it seems to be the entropic material par, par excellence. So yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I mean, your readers can can look online at the more specific projects in the in the in the dust book. But maybe it, it, what's what's interesting about dust is that of all of the um, Of all of the subnatures, if we if we can think of them as a category that I wrote about, there there's so much philosophical literature about dust, right? And I think it's 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 obviously um, in some sense trying to recuperate the infinitesimal. It's about challenging the archive, right? Because you know how can how can dust ever be recorded in history? So it blows away. So people that are very interested in historiography or, or theories of history, um, whether it's George Bataille, George Bataille or Or um, oh, I'm trying to remember her name. Um, But even in the Bible, right? It's like uh, from dust we come, and to dust yeah. we will go back. Yeah, yeah. There's there's yeah. this kind of almost uh, unavoidable entropy that's going to be applied to every every material assemblage of the earth that's going to go back to dust, right? So yes. There's a I can't remember her name. She's a fantastic historian, actually of empire, and she wrote a, a almost like an experimental history book about being in the archive, and she was trying to describe the pervasiveness of dust in the archive. This is one of the, the many things in this book. And yet, saying that this is this is something that's everywhere in the archive, but yet is is completely excluded. It's actually a very subnatural kind of piece of writing. It's, it's completely excluded from the archive, but it's everywhere. Um, there's um, there's a book by a guy whose last name is Amato, I believe, that's called Dust. Like in British cultural theory, in, in particular, there's all this amazing writing about dust, and I think it is about this substance that seems that we associate so much with history but seems to defy our ability to store size it doesn't have a style obviously it doesn't have um uh, geography right you know i suppose it could like red dust or something or black dust from certain kinds of landscapes generally speaking it doesn't have any of the kinds of things in which through which we structure knowledge and yet it's everywhere so 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 a, so a chapter like dust and this issue of history is is um this i guess in the end this this for me is was the way I wanted to see this this concept of subnature move forward. So so the whole without sounding ridiculously meta, the whole book is about giving subnature kind of history, right? So then I began to think via chapter like dust or exhaust or weeds, etc. 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 Is is the future project of this critical theory of nature, of subnatural, to give nature a history? Because if nature is not nature, if it is constructed, like Neil Leach says, if it is something that Neil um, Smith And Neil Neil Smith, sorry, yeah. says that it, it is something that we must confront. Then, um, then, and it is a product of human. Then, then nature has a history, and the subnatural must be given a history. And I thought, like, we need to envision architectural projects that 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 make the subnatural somehow appear as historical, as impossible as that is, because it ha- it's a very complicated idea. Because these things like dust or dirt or dankness, they don't have historicism which is the primary ways in which we recognize something of being a particular time. It has a style. It's of the Renaissance era. It has 
age or patina, but if you're dealing with the thing itself, it's it's much more complicated. So how how do we how do we make a historical project out of this? And there are colleagues and friends of mine who who have done some work on this, like um, you know uh, Philip Rom or Jorge Otero Pelos, architects that I continually I, I talk to almost weekly and very you know very interested in their work. But but I think more there's more. There could be an entirely reconstructive project, for example, or entirely experimental historical project in which subnature has some role to play. Maybe in in the, in the mound, if we talk about that, it might be, it might be mm. a good example among others. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. We'll talk about the mound okay. in a, in yeah, a yeah. moment, and uh, uh, I, I suppose that gives a little preview, just enough to to pick the brains of the listeners. But um, since you just talked about uh, uh, Philip Ram being a, a kind of paradigmatic architect of, of who who had to embrace uh, one aspect of, uh, and I would say only. Only one aspect mm, of this mm, of this, yeah, uh, this sub nature, nature, which is uh, 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 the the, comp- the architectural component of atmosphere, which yeah. we don't necessarily uh, uh, think so much about because of its uh, uh, invisibility most of the time. Um, but so so let's uh, let's move on if you if you want to the to this new book you that recently came out the, that's called Manhattan Manhattan Atmospheres. Uh, could you maybe describe us a little bit what what you were trying to do in the kind of affiliation of their of, of from some nature to this new book? Yeah, yeah. So at, at, at the most basic Manhattan atmosphere is a is a, a, a an architect a, a micro architectural history of New York during its crisis years, during the 1970s. But more specifically, my argument is that the, um, the grandeur of New York's um, nature project, which is spectacular from things like Central Park to the water system, to the parkways, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that, that, that grandeur of its project, which appears to fall apart in the 1970s because of the collapse of uh, Manhattan's economy, New York City's economy, that that project somehow continues within the interior of buildings. Um, it becomes, I guess one, I don't necessarily say this, but I guess one could, for the purposes of our discussion here, one could say it, it does in a sense become an atmospheric project. Like one envisions new nature produced inside of these sealed um, buildings. And this nature that was imagined, and by nature I mean literal forms of greenery inside buildings, but also things, as, as you mentioned, Leopold, that are, that are more subtle and invisible, like the air within buildings, how it's reimagined both in dialogue with and as a counter to this city outside that's that appears to be otherwise falling apart from everything from pollution to economic um, collapse to um, just um, very significant forms of economic transformation, the post-industrialization of the city. And so this is turning into a longer explanation. Mm-hmm. But one of the argument is somehow that this 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 nature, this this socio nature is a better word that gets produced within the atmosphere, the interiors of these buildings becomes linked, very intimately linked, to all kinds of aspects of New York's nascent economy. So everything from the cultural industry, so I, talk, I read a chapter about the atmospheres inside museums, to trading halls, to the atmospheres that are produced to support the bodies of financial traders, to atmospheres that are created for apartment buildings and extremely polluted and, and, and really difficult sites in Manhattan, to... Um, to um, uh, other to, to more things we're more familiar with, like the kinds of atmospheres that are produced inside um, the atria of office buildings to, to grow plants. Anyway, that um, when creating these various forms of paranoia, um, 
that Manhattan Atmosphere is very much about what's happening in reaction to that. But I think one thing I love about that book, there's so many fun ways to describe it. Like the challenge, so that's how it relates to subnature. It's a, it's another history of of a kind of nature that doesn't have a history. Okay, but there's two big differences I think between this book and the other. One, it's a very specific time, very specific place, um, very much more focused. And I think one of the things that I wanted to do in this book. Um, was to write a, a history of Manhattan during a very critical, very important time in its history, um, but only by talking about the interior, you know. And in that way, I think this book is is very inspired by by um, someone like um, Walter Benjamin, you know, who tried to write a history of Paris at a very specific time, but also the interior. And I think, I, I think in a in a very romantic way, I was very much inspired by that work and that unfinished work. And, and took it as almost like a personal challenge. Like, could you do something at a similar moment of economic crisis, you know, but in the 70s in Manhattan? So, you know, uh, that was, it, the book very much has that sense to it. Like, how, how can you write about a place, but just from the inside? Yeah. And, and a very specific kind of inside. Yeah, well, precisely. Is, uh, could you maybe tell us a bit more about the uh, political aspect of this control of atmosphere? Because uh, there's... Uh, uh, atmosphere, especially within our, uh, what, what Foucault would call a biopolitical bio mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, regime, yeah. uh, so, uh, a type of sovereignty that's, that's mm -hmm. uh, direct, directly uh, uh, unfolding itself on the, on the life of people, mm -hmm. something, something, uh, something like the atmosphere that is either uh, toxic or mm -hmm. uh, I mean, polluted, just mm -hmm. like you mentioned, uh, to a certain degree. Uh, um, Or, or on the contrary, uh, 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 what we would call healthy. Yeah. Is that the the, the, um, the control the control of atmospheres becomes uh, um, eminently important in the in the way uh, con the control of populations is being deployed on on bodies. So can you maybe tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's a really good question. Okay, so or a really good series of provocations. So I think one way to begin to address what you're talking about is to talk about a very specific and very difficult chapter in the book. Neatly follows the introduction. It's the first chapter of the book. is about these apartment buildings that I think are one of the most difficult things to write about called the um, Washington Bridge Apartments. They're in... Um, Washington Heights neighborhood of New York City. They're built right over the Trans-Manhattan Expressway. Have you seen them? Have to see them? They're, they're... Maybe. Okay. They're four aluminum slab buildings that are literally over the, the extension of the George Washington Bridge as, it, as that expressway. It's called the Trans-Manhattan yes. Expressway before it goes to Cubia. So most people that pass those buildings actually think they're, they're what we call in the state's projects, right? That they were made as subsidized housing for the poor, but they're actually made as middle and upper middle class housing. And so without obsessing about the, the class for whom a building's made, I don't know if, you know, I personally don't know if architecture can ever have a class per se, like, you know, um, in perpetuity, but in this particular instance, these buildings were made to, in a sense, gentrify a neighborhood or begin to enact the process of gentrification. So. We tend when if I say a word like gentrification, you tend one one tends to conjure up images today maybe of like new condominium projects in in sort of um, uh, poor neighborhoods or in the 70s or 80s 
time of these buildings, 70s, you said gentrification, you would think of people buying old historic buildings and renovating them in, in otherwise, you know, um, working class or, or poorer neighborhoods. Okay. But these, these buildings were interesting because they were built over a highway that was polluting the surrounding neighborhood that was bringing the creating like really poor air quality problems in this neighborhood and and you know this is very difficult kind of um, environment for people in this neighborhood these buildings were gentrifying an environment okay so what is that how do you gentrify an environment like we know what gentrification of space looks like which is something that geographers write a lot about but geographers don't spend enough time thinking about like how 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 does one gentrify an environment and i think in this way the kind of late modern technologies of architecture from the, the sealed um, aluminum skins that these buildings had to their aesthetics of environmental resistance to their surroundings were very much wrapped up in this idea, this concept of gentrifying environment. Now, as far as I know, like in the historical record, there's only one theorist of environmental gentrification from our, from the, you know, from the, the, the kind of um, the era from which these buildings from. That's Rainer Banham, you know. And Bannum, someone, of course, who we associate as, as someone who gave um, HVAC, you know, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, a history in his book, The Well-Tempered Environment. But it's also someone who theorized environmental gentrification. And, you know, when Bannum writes, sometimes you don't know if he's being sarcastic or, 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 or what. But he, 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 he loved, or loved it might be a strong word, he, he was um, enticed by these buildings. Actually, he's one of the few people to have written about them very seriously. And for him, he says, they, they satisfy the dream of the, infra- of the megastructure to some kind of control the environment as a totality. So that's a very biopolitical idea, I would say. Um, but he also wrote in that, in that book, Megastructure, um, it's his book about, mega, about megastructures in which he discusses the Washington Bridge's apartments and, and, and lauds them. Um, he also describes megastructure these kinds of megastructural projects as a way to gentrify an environment. And he actually brings up this um, project by an architect, I think you pronounce his name, Werner Gardif, who was um, hired by the French state to develop a megastructural project for Algier, um, which is basically, to our eyes today, it looks like a, like a mega mall, it's like this enormous air-conditioned space. And he even writes about this space as providing comfort to people that would otherwise find the environment of Algier intolerable to them. So this might, I mean, when, when I call that the... So highly colonial... Yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. Right. So, I mean, gentrification is obviously, in, in some ways, in, in some respects, uh, a, a project of, of colonization. That might okay. be too strong a word to use, but well, it is, you know... in a lot of respects, let's say. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, right, okay, yeah. Um, so, um, so, so these, okay, so on the one hand, what do these buildings do? They, they create an environment within the otherwise polluted environment, but they also create one in which people's bodies are being supported to, to a degree. The building, by the way, was complete failure as a piece of environmental modification equipment. Like, it was very, very um, uh, much, of, uh, the interior space was very much infiltrated by exhaust from the roadway below. Like, they, in fact, almost all the buildings I read about are complete failures, but they're fantasies of what architecture could do in this particular concept. Are, are very interesting and, and, and disturbing and also in some ways inspiring. Not, not this particular case, but in other cases. Anyway, so, um, so these, were the, these buildings were interesting. So they are, in a sense, like, a, to use your word, biopolitics. Um, they were a space, space in which, um, in, in which um, certain people were envisioned as maintaining health 
and others were clearly not, not, not participants in that. People living in the neighborhood were, were left to their own devices. But, but historically, just some details about these buildings, very interesting buildings, I think, even though they're so difficult to write about. They were the first buildings analyzed by the Environmental Protection Agency. By the what, sorry? The, Envi- the EPA, the Environmental mm-hmm. Protection Agency. The Environmental Protection Agency is founded in 1970, I believe it is, by Nixon. 1973 or two, I can't remember the exact date. These are the first works of architecture they look at. They want to, and they use very sophisticated computer equipment because they're fascinated. Can build architecture mediate otherwise intolerably polluted sites? And their answer is, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. Um, but buildings like this... I, I argue that buildings like the Washington Bridge Apartments um, lurk within the, the contemporary history of, of architecture. So, for example, a building um, by uh, uh, Pelly Clark Pelly in uh, New York called the Solaire, um, which was built almost directly abutting the, um, the site of the World Trade Center attacks and all of the environmental problems there. And the you know all the dust that was kicked up by that within that context, they advertised and built these buildings as as offering like double or triple filtered air. So this 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 concept of of buildings as refuges still lingers. And I mean, I could go on and on about this, but it's no, no. But I uh, I was interested in uh, in uh, the first part of your of your response in the fact that it, it resonated in me in the fact that I was talking about toxicity and and. Uh, health mm-hmm. and and I suppose uh, in my question it was understood as a sort of uh, scientific uh, aspect of it, a sort of uh, objective. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but it's true. It's true. But based on what you were saying about gentrification and and uh, this example in Algiers, it's it's also there's also a political subjectivity to to those notions and how and how we could imagine the the French columns of of Algiers thinking that the air would be toxic because mm-hmm. it would be uh, the mm-hmm. same air shared mm-hmm. with the colonized uh, 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 population and how and how being able to control uh, the atmosphere in which they're in would be uh, would be the colonial projects of of mm-hmm. of, of uh, being where they are uh-huh. nam- namely uh, uh, Algeria yeah. but uh, still with a with a sort of segregated uh, infrastructure was yeah. would be able to 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 have this uh, subjectivity of, of yeah. uh, toxicity and health basically well hmm, okay I, I see a theme of colonization emerging here okay so <laughs> so I mean the way that um, these atmospheres it's not, it's not innocence <laughs> it's no no no, 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 no. It's, it's interesting because because even though I mean we're getting to very specific aspects of this book but mm-hmm. <clears throat> even though this book is very much about a period of, of late modern architecture one of my arguments is that this this project that gets staged in Manhattan, by project I mean the larger assemblage of buildings that are realized in Manhattan, <clears throat> very much revives a kind of almost Victorian, or some Victorian sentiments that we would associate with things like imperialization, colonization, et cetera, et cetera. So um, some examples that I think are, are fascinating and I still struggle with. So the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, when it expanded in between 1967 all the way up until the early 80s, I guess it's actually a project that, that continued until quite recently, um, imagined itself as a refuge for world culture. And the way that refuge was articulated and designed, etc., was was very much within a late modern aesthetic of mirrored glass and envi- and buildings expressed as, as holding an environment versus space okay, inside, something that was developed in a, in a very convincing, sophisticated way, I would argue, by Kevin Roche and John Dinkaloo, two architects that, that I actually admire quite a bit. Anyway, so one of 
the one of the chapters of the book talks about that particular project and how that was imagined and and one of the ways one of the things i think i, I would argue is that the environment of the museum and and here we're, we're talking about atmospheric systems controlling the light etc which was envisioned as a as a place to to hold artifacts that were brought via you know like you mentioned, colonization or exploration or, or, or whatever, more normative, or, or normative might not be the right word, or other forms of financial transactions that museums do that we don't see as being nefarious as the latter two things, <laughs> that the museum has always been imagined as the space to hold thing, but suddenly the atmosphere is operationalized in that process. And museums suddenly become seen, I think, as a place where, where culture is safe from a kind of invidious environmental destruction that comes in the wake of industrialization, you know. And I think, I think we can trace some instances of that to earlier eras, but I, I think that's something that really, really gets um, instantiated in a very monumental way in the 1960s and 1970s. And I think this expansion of the Metropolitan Museum of Art is absolutely key to, to that argument. So now, for example, so we very much inherit the legacy. Now, today, when the British Museum says it wants to keep the Elgin marbles, it can't use a, a kind of imperious argument about the superiority of British museological culture. It says, well, the, the atmosphere in Athens is horribly polluted. And so these marbles, which were on the, on the Acropolis and the Parthenon, must now be kept in London where they'll be safe. So what do the Athenian uh, uh, government do? They build a museum by Bernard Chumi. And what does that museum advertise? That it has an atmosphere that is up to the highest standards of museological um, uh, techniques. So now the the, so now the the argument has been mute because they promise to protect the things as well as they can be protected in, in Britain. But the specific techniques of it aren't what interests me. The fact that the museum suddenly gets operationalized as this um, atmosphere um, for the protection of world culture, I think, is, is fascinating. And here we're not really talking about biopolitics because the things in museums aren't alive, but we're talking about something else. And actually, if I can continue, the word that I ultimately use to label these environments is not biopolitics, although I think that word is very useful when talking about human beings or you know, living things, is the word maintenance. And this is a, a term, um, this idea of maintenance as a cultural um, phenomena or object or something that could be objectified. It's, it's something that is theorized by an artist named Merle Landeman Euclides, who's in New York City at the time in which I'm writing. And she wrote, writes a piece that in many ways foreshadows the ideas of Foucault years later. She writes this piece in the late 60s called The Manifesto of Maintenance Art. And, it, and what she's trying to do is take acts of institutional maintenance from like washing things to cleaning things. She's talking about objects and turning them into cultural, objectified, reified um, activities, cultural objects. Okay. So she's exhibiting her cleaning of things. That's what she's proposing in this uh, manifesto. What's even more interesting, I think, in a passage that's almost completely <clears throat> forgotten by her contemporary commentators at the end, she's, she writes this bit about architecture, and it's almost a parody of the kinds of buildings, like what I've just described to you, that are going up in Manhattan. She says, I am going to make a building in which the air, polluted air over Manhattan will come in and be performatively cleaned inside the space. I'm going to make a museum space in which river water from the Hudson River that's horribly polluted will be come in and purified. And so she's, she's I, I think she's in a way she's ridiculing this architectural project from this time and saying, and, and the way it's becoming institutionalized in the city. It's a really, really interesting, I think, or very useful um, concept, maintenance, that enables us to link things like, like, like code and geographical theories to, to a lot of other uh, literature. So, yeah. I see. Uh, I, 
I don't have much of a transition to uh, reach to the the last little chapter of our of our conversation. But since we've been evoking it at least twice uh, already in the conversation, <laughs> then we'll 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 reach to it, uh, uh, which is this uh, this project you're st- you're mm-hmm. trying to make hap- happening in Paris, yeah. uh, and, uh, and that is uh, related to. Uh, a period of time that you and I are uh, quite fascinated uh, mm. uh, by, which is the, the 1871 Paris Commune. Yeah. Yeah. M- maybe to explain very, very briefly uh, uh, this era, um, uh, France, France uh, under the Third Empire, uh, so the Nap- Napoleon III, uh, was uh, under attack by the Prussians, and, um, and uh, Paris was under siege. Napoleon gets captured, uh, gets captured in uh, in uh, Sedan, uh, and uh, declares the end of war. The, the Prussians won, and Paris is asked to give up on its weapons, which they refuse. And uh, and long long story short, uh, they declare their independence from the rest of France and, and declare the Paris Commune. Um, Three months later, they were annihilated by their by Adolphe Thiers and his administration uh, based in Versailles. Uh, but for three months, um, for three months, was happening a sort of uh, proletarian uh, republic, uh, uh, and in uh, in ways that have been uh, described at length by someone like Karl Marx, uh, the same years and the same years that the the commune happened. And uh, among among the, the many social uh, um, decisions that have been taken by the commune during its uh, short existence, there is a there is a, a relatively large amount of things that are that architects would could be uh, interested in because of their spatial uh, uh, attributes. Some of which being a little bit constructivist. Many of them being actually more destructive, yes, let's say, yeah. and that's what we're going to talk about right now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, many many buildings were built, uh, were burnt, sorry, mm. uh, both as a kind of mm. militarized uh, uh, strategy, but also as a sort of very strong symbolical uh, 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 gesture, like uh, the the Palais des Tuileries, uh, that was like the, the last, the, the most western wing of, uh, of Le Louvre, the, the former royal palace. That that was burnt and never got rebuilt, so like the, it doesn't exist anymore. And we get to it as a very very ceremonialized destruction of the of the Vendome column, which had uh, Napoleon the first, the, the one that most people know, uh, uh, on top of it as a sculpture. And uh, I'll, I'm gonna let you uh, take it <laughs> take it from there and describe a little bit this this discussion okay. that was uh, orchestrated by uh, the painter Gustave Courbet as well. Yeah, yeah. But first, I feel compelled to offer a connection sure. <laughs> to, to it all. Sure. So, I mean, I should have asked you. <laughs> no, no, no. no. It's, it's, yeah, no. Otherwise, it seems it, it doesn't seem like it, it's there. But I think it, I think it might be. Um, you know, someone who's trained both as an architectural historian and geographer. So, you know, I studied both geography and architectural history. Geographers are very. I I, I I I mix the two things. Geographers, there's a whole strand of geographic literature that I, I would say my work is, is very much connected to, which which looks at moments of urban crises as as key moments in which to study what happens in cities. So for someone like myself, whether it's in subnature and looking at 
you know, London after World War II or Tokyo after World War II or, or um, the, ex- the first experiences of artillery in Paris and, and, and looking at these things or, or horrible pollution in the Victorian era, looking at New York City in the 1970s, looking at Paris in 1871 makes complete sense. Um, and through all of it, I'm very much interested in the kinds of nature that gets produced, going back to Neil Smith's idea, um, at these moments of crisis. Like, what, what kind of nature gets realized? And so I'm very interested in the destruction of the Vendome column, both as a revolutionary act, but also because I think something that we might argue to be like a radical landscape or a form of revolutionary nature is also realized on that site and in that place. So, as you mentioned, um, the, the Place Vendôme column, the Colonne de la Grande Armée, right, is um, is is, collo- is brought down um, by um, some en- by a series of engineers that are hired by the commune. Um, but before this um, column was was ceremoniously and, and very carefully actually destroyed, it was not a spontaneous act in any way, um, but a careful act of engineering. Um, the, the engineers worked with a man named Georges Cavalier who. Um, took over from Alfand as the uh, communards director of, of parks and, uh, and, way, and roads and built this enormous mound of sand, straw, hay, and manure. Um, it was actually based upon um, a, a kind of military um, landscape uh, that was made to absorb the shock of cannon fire. And, um, but they built this thing as a cushion. So when they toppled the mound, which was obviously had this hated symbol of this hated, hated Bonaparte symbol, when they toppled the mound, it would it would collapse and not disturb the square in any way, and it, which was stipulated by the commune that this would be a very targeted demolition and none of the other um, parts of the Place Vendôme should be harmed. Anyway, there's, there's actually a very large sewer. I don't even know if it still runs under the Place Vendôme. It used to run under the Place Vendôme, and they were worried that the street would cave in as well as all of the, the windows and walls would crack from collapsing something the size of a sequoia tree in the middle of Paris. Anyway. So this landscape is actually very interesting. So there's this big mound. Now, when the mound, the mound was built, it existed for about half a day before the column was destroyed. This mound is a very utilitarian object. It's like a cushion right? um, to, to, for the uh, column to fall into. But it was also a very, it was a landscape that was in many ways very symbolic. Napoleon was going to land in a pile of urban detritus. Okay? And so it was an insult to Napoleon. But it also had a very interesting resonance with the type of landscape that I think has been forgotten in recent um, French history, but also very much in modern landscape history. So during the, the original French Revolution of 1789, um, in, in the years immediately following 17, you know, 1790, 1791, Robespierre commissioned a series of enormous mounds in several key locations in Paris, actually also in Bordeaux, as places to raise revolutionary symbols. And they, were, they used the term colline, you know, there's almost like, 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 very pretty kinds of heaps of dirt and rocks on which revolutionary symptoms, symbols would be raised. And the Mound of Vendôme, as I call it, was very much imagined in that tradition, but as a kind of inverted sense of it. It would be the, a mound in which not something would be raised, but in which something would collapse and be destroyed. And so it has this fascinating kind of resonance with radical revolutionary natures. So anyway, so... Um, as we are both obsessed with commune history and very interested in, in this idea, I'm also very interested in how one can realize this, this radical, frankly, subnatural artifact, how one could potentially reconstruct it. I think it is such a provocation to, um, it, this mound is such a provocation to the ways that we imagine the way history functions in cities. It's not pretty, it's not pleasant. 
um, to the way memory functions in cities. And also, I'm very interested in how something, these moments of urban radicality, of crisis, like the commune, become memorialized or remembered in Paris. And as we both know, there's no evidence or no marker. Or n- there's no, there's no, there's no nothing. Yeah, that's uh, something I should have said. The, the column is back to the absolute, yeah. to the, in the exact same yeah. position and uh, state than it used to be. Yeah, Patrice McMahon, who's the, the you know the general who the, the head of the Versailles. McMahon, yeah. Yeah, McMahon. Yeah, he. Um, sorry, he's done Irish pronunciation. <laughs> he, um, you know, he he oversaw the slaughter himself of you know the the bloody week as it's called. And um, of the of the communards, and he actually undertook the re- the commission to rebuild um, the column. It was finished in 1875. So yes, if you go to the site today, the column looks exactly as it did before um, the commune. There's a few cracks here. And there, yeah, you know. and it's a higher, it's the highest piece of real estate in entire. Oh yeah, it's very fancy. The area, entire right. country, I suppose. Yeah. So, for many reasons, I'm like okay. I want to see if one can reconstruct this. There's a reconstruction already in the square, the reconstruct column. Let's have another reconstruction join the reconstruction. Let's reconstruct the mound of Endo. And I thought this was kind of crazy, but, you know, crazy can lead to things that are very interesting and fascinating. Anyway, so this entire, my entire effort to, um, to realize this work of experimental history, to remake this historical landscape, is um, actually, I don't even know if I mentioned this to you, is going to be exhibited at the Canadian Center for Architecture this summer, which is really exciting. They have a very large collection of uh, materials related to actually the column. Um, the, they've been collecting them for years, and so it's a great place for visitors to see what happened. They have great photographic collections of the destruction of the column, and then they'll also have the images of, of my proposed reconstruction. And actually, via some people I know, um, What's amazing is that we are actually right now talking with um, the cultural authorities, as they're called, in Paris's city hall to um, to realize this for one half day, you know, which is something of an undertaking. And it's just been a fun, really fun, exciting project to see. And we're actually trying to raise money for this now. And should probably make an appeal <laughs> to your podcast. But it's very expensive to, to, to make these kinds of projects. Anyway, um, but I think to realize this thing for one half day, we'll film it, we'll invite people into the square to talk to us about it, to what it all means, to what it's all about. I think, it, I think it's, in a way, it's, it enables these things we've been talking about, the subnatural, the nature of crisis, the, the, the things that we want to forget and throw away, the histories that we want to create and demand, the critical forms of nature we all want to happen it enables that to to at least exist for some brief moment Mm -hmm. and maybe at the moment it can only exist briefly for six or seven hours in such a site but i think that would be an exciting um way to imagine all this theorization all this history having some kind of future um space or reification or objectification and things that may exist in our cities Mm -hmm. yeah and obviously, I was, I was being provocative, uh, uh, contrasting a sort of constructivist with a destruct- destructivist. Uh, but actually, uh, they are they are all part of the same uh, part of the same uh, 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 movement, uh, revolutionary movement. Uh, that uh, and and an argument that I've been carrying uh, a few times is that the destruction of the column bundle mm-hmm. is. Highly a constructivist uh, mm. gesture. So uh, the the mound the mound that you're you're mm. you're creating is uh, I think shows that very well. Um, well, I think that concludes our conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much, David, for your time, and uh, and I invite everybody to read uh, your two books in in the chronological order or not. <laughs> I suppose. Thank you. Sure.